welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Ophthalmology. In this podcast, Dr. Jennifer Lowe, a leading expert in cataract and refractive surgery, offers her insights on the key considerations for intraocular lens selection and management of patients with cataracts and ocular comorbidities, including glaucoma, age-related macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Alcon Vision LLC and Johnson & Johnson Surgical Vision Inc. and is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. In our first interview, Dr. Lowe outlines the key considerations for intraocular lens selection and the management of patients with cataracts and glaucoma. Hi, my name is Jennifer Lowe and I'm an ophthalmologist with a focus on cataract and refractive surgery based out of Miami, Florida, United States. I currently work in my practice, Low Ophthalmology Associates, that I founded in 2016. And I am also on volunteer clinical faculty at Larkin Ophthalmology Residency Program in Miami, Florida. How does glaucoma affect vision? And what are the implications of glaucoma on patients requiring cataract surgery? This is a great question because many of the patients that we see have multiple diseases of their eye, unfortunately, such as glaucoma and cataract. So as ophthalmologists and eye care providers, we're faced with the situation on a daily basis. As you know, there's two types of glaucoma, such as open angle and closed angle, and they present differently. But what they ultimately do to our patients is they steal their vision. As we know, it can start with a small defect in the periphery, such as a nasal step, and then it can extend to an arcuate scotoma, and even worst case, a tunnel vision defect, and even at the end, possible complete vision loss. However, in our patients that have mild glaucoma, um, I, I do always like to explain to them that I think their prognosis with cataract surgery will still be quite good. However, we have to think about different lens or IOL options for them and what may be better for them or what may not be such a good choice. Also, patients that have more severe scotomas, of course, we have to have a discussion as well as their options for lens implants are are less, less available. And again, I think discussing the possible outcomes in terms of their prognosis is very important. Of course, if someone has a mild scotoma or a mild nasal step, most likely after cataract surgery, they'll be quite happy, and, and we'll um, discuss some studies that show this. If they have a, a worse scotoma, though, however, we have to be very ethical in discussing to our patients that we have a more guarded visual prognosis for them after the surgery, even if the surgery is considered successful. So it's very important, again, to have this good discussion with your patients ahead of time prior to actually performing the surgery. Um, of course, it's also important to manage the glaucoma after the surgery as well, and even consider possibly adding a minimally invasive glaucoma procedure as well during the cataract surgery, as this can be an opportunity for some patients to have surgical treatment of their glaucoma at the same time as their cataract surgery. What are your key considerations when selecting an intraocular lens for patients with mild and well-controlled glaucoma? For mild or well-controlled glaucoma, I often will discuss with my patients the full spectrum of lens implants available. Monofocals, of course, are a great choice 
as they do provide the best clarity of vision with one focal point. But I still think that patients with mild or well-controlled glaucoma could be candidates for the extended depth of focus or multifocal implants. It does depend, of course, on what their visual field and optic nerve look like. If a patient has minimal to no visual field defects and their optic nerve is still healthy, I think that they can be a candidate for both multifocal and extended depth of focus or EDOF ILLs. We know with both multifocal and EDOF lenses, there can be a reduction in contrast sensitivity. So of course, if someone has a severe visual field defect or profound thinning of the retinal fiber neural layer on OCT or ganglion cell layer loss, I do have a more serious in-depth discussion with a patient on the compromise or sacrifice to their contrast sensitivity that they could notice with a multifocal or EDOF lens. Again, this has to be weighed with the benefits of spectacle independence with some of the multifocal and EDOF lenses versus that reduction in contrast sensitivity. Again, each patient is individualized. I don't think that someone, because someone has mild glaucoma means that they are not a candidate for a premium lens, but certainly we have to take each case on a patient by patient basis depending again on their visual field defects, their appearance of, and health of their optic nerve, and also how controlled their glaucoma is. If we think that someone is going to continue to progress rapidly or need further surgical interventions with their glaucoma, it may be best to stick with a monofocal lens. But again, having a discussion ahead of time with our patients so they can be part of the process is key. What are your key considerations when selecting an intraocular lens for patients with moderate or severe glaucoma? In moderate or severe glaucoma, it is a different situation in that we know that patients have much more severe visual field loss. Their IOP control is worse. They may be on multiple glaucoma medications. All of these things can cause worsened postoperative visual acuity, even with a perfect surgery. Taking, having to take multiple glaucoma drops alone can lead to a worsened ocular surface. And so we know that makes it much more difficult to have a perfect visual result after. Also, there can be other considerations. Patients with glaucoma may have a version of glaucoma called pseudoexfoliative glaucoma, and that can go along with zonular weakness, which is something to consider and something to know about ahead of time before recommending an IOL that requires perfect centration. And then again, like we were discussing, contrast sensitivity is one of the big concerns with glaucoma. And it may be hard to pick up on that just based on a visual acuity test in the exam lane alone. So it's very important to have that discussion with patients because picking a multifocal or EDOF lens could lead to some contrast sensitivity. And Again, we have to use our clinical judgment on how severe that patient's glaucoma is, how well controlled it is, and how much a patient may notice that reduction in contrast sensitivity. Having a clear discussion with the patient and their family member I think is important. I think that patients with glaucoma can still be considered candidates for multifocal or EDOF lenses, but again, the clinician, the physician has to use his or her judgment and use all the testing that they have available 
to determine if this is something that could help the patient have a good result. If someone has advanced or severe glaucoma, I do typically stick with the monofocal intraocular lens in order to provide them with good contrast sensitivity. But we, of course, do have to mention that they wear glasses. And again, I always tell my patients there is some sort of compromise in the vision with a multifocal or EDOF lens that we have to consider, especially when they have coexisting advanced or severe glaucoma. How do you counsel your patients with glaucoma prior to cataract surgery in terms of expected outcomes? That's a great question because, again, preoperative counseling for our patients is critical. So many times patients come in with the expectation that their outcome with cataract surgery is going to be the same as their friend and neighbor. We've all heard the story where the patient says, but my friend had cataract surgery and the next day was seeing 2020 without glasses. And that's something difficult for us to explain as surgeons, that while many patients luckily have that excellent result, there are many patients also that don't, and that can be because, not necessarily from a surgical complication, which was what the patient naturally thinks, but really from the patient's pre-existing health or condition of their eye. And one of the big ones that we're discussing today, of course, is glaucoma. And we know that glaucoma is really one of those silent eye diseases. Many patients don't even know they have glaucoma. They come in, they've been never diagnosed with glaucoma, and you're the first doctor to tell them that. So it can be a shock. Uh, it can be upsetting, and they don't even understand necessarily, of course, what glaucoma is. So I think preoperative counseling, again, is critical. And when you diagnose someone with glaucoma, it's important to let them know how glaucoma interacts differently than their eye with their eye than a cataract. Of course, a cataract we can treat, we can cure. Patients understand that. What can be more difficult to explain to a patient is that glaucoma is incurable, and it's something that even after the cataract surgery we have to monitor. Explaining that their outcome may be less than ideal compared to their friends or family, and also that even after successful cataract surgery, they still need to have ongoing treatment with us. There are studies that show there is an association between preoperative visual field defects and mean deviation and the outcome of the mean best corrected visual acuity two months after surgery. The good news is that the higher the preoperative um, mean deviation, the better the postoperative best corrected visual acuity is. So again, if you have a better outcome, if you sorry, if you have a better um, preoperative uh, visual field index or a higher mean deviation, there is a better success with having postoperative best corrective visual acuity. So we know that we can get our patients to be seeing better after cataract surgery, even if they do have glaucomatous damage. Another interesting point is that 10 years after cataract surgery, in patients with primary angle closure glaucoma, there was still shown to be an improved mean best corrected visual acuity, and, IO, and even IOP was improved up to 10 years after the surgery. So we can tell our patients that we're confident that cataract surgery can help them. But again, having that important discussion ahead of time about their outcomes, prognosis, and IOL selection is key. Thank you for those interesting insights, Dr. Lowe.
Now let's move on to our next topic, which examines the key considerations for intraocular lens selection and the management of patients with cataracts and age-related macular degeneration. What are the different types of age-related macular degeneration and how do each affect vision in patients? There are two main different types of AMD or age-related macular degeneration. One is what we consider the dry macular degeneration, which is more of an atrophy of the macula. The retina pigment epithelial cells are degenerating, and patients often get the drusen deposition formation that contributes to a reduced contrast sensitivity, scotomas, and loss of central vision. Typically, we associate the dry form or the geographic atrophy form as milder and maybe slower to progress. But it is important to note that this type of AMD can still be very devastating to patient's vision and, 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 and really can affect the outcome of their surgery, even though as clinicians we tend to consider it to be the less worse version in most patients. What we get more concerned about initially is what we call wet AMD or neovascular AMD. And this can have a much more rapid progression in the course of the disease and a more sudden onset where the patient will have an acute change in vision. They'll usually notice a metamorphopsia, which is when a straight line or a line that should be straight looks wavy. Colors can seem less bright and it leads to a rapid loss of central vision that the patient may come in as an emergency. Again, historically, we've always considered the wet form of AMD or the neovascular form of AMD to be a worse situation. However, there are treatments for this that patients can receive, as we know, um, that can really actually help their vision. Both types of AMD, of course, will affect central vision and need to be discussed in detail with our patients ahead of time and treated if possible. Does cataract surgery affect the development or progression of age-related macular degeneration? This is a really interesting question that has been much debated over the years. There is an association between cataract surgery and the progression and development of AMD in certain situations. In a study performed by Yang in the Journal of Ophthalmology, This was a meta-analysis looking at multiple different studies between cataract surgery and AMD. And the meta-analysis did find that cataract surgery was significantly associated with an increased risk of late AMD development and progression. It wasn't associated with the increased risk of early AMD So that's important to know, but it was associated with an increased risk of late AMD. It is something important to tell our patients. Cataract surgery was also significantly associated with the incidence of early and late AMD and progression of AMD in patients that had a follow-up of greater than five years. What does that mean? That means in patients that were followed less than five years, they didn't notice an increased association in the incidence of early or late AMD but the incidence of association was worse when we follow patients longer term, so greater than five years. I think this is an important conversation to have with our patient. 
the issue is there are, while the, you know, it may seem scary to a patient to think that, oh, maybe cataract surgery could be associated with the progression of my AMD. And, and that makes maybe a patient hesitant to have cataract surgery. It's also important to note that in the same study, they found that patients still experienced an overall better visual acuity by having the cataract surgery and a higher satisfaction level than if they didn't have the cataract surgery. So I think it's important to put this data into context because cataract surgery can still really help our patients, even with AMD, because we know that the cataract itself is reducing the light entering the eye, possibly reducing the contrast sensitivity and the clarity of our vision. So I think while this study, this meta-analysis is, is very interesting and important, I think it's also still important to keep it into context that cataract surgery overall is still very beneficial for our patients. However, what we can do is when we have our patients that have macular degeneration, whether it's early or late, wet or dry, we really should still monitor them very closely and have them even possibly be seen and followed by a retina specialist. So I think these, these things are important and critical to help um, patients understand that what their options are. And I wouldn't necessarily say that because a patient has advanced AMD that they should not have cataract surgery. But it's important to know the data and important to understand how this can have an effect on our patients. What are your key considerations when selecting an intraocular lens for patients with age-related macular degeneration? When patients have any form of macular degeneration, whether it be wet or dry, meaning atrophic or neovascular, I am much more cautious about recommending one of the advanced technology intraocular lens implants because we know that these intraocular lens implants um, that are a multifocal or EDOF lens tend to reduce, well, they, we know they reduce contrast sensitivity. And because there is this diffractive technology in these lenses, it's splitting the light. And if there's any damage to the eye, especially any kind of macular abnormality, the patient is not going to achieve the crispness of vision that they are desiring and expecting, especially they're expecting to be uh, glasses free. Therefore, in any patient with macular degeneration, I do typically do not recommend a multifocal or EDOF lens. However, I would consider using a toric lens because a toric lens, while it's reducing the astigmatism, it's not affecting that contrast sensitivity and it's not altering the focal point going into the eye and it's still a monofocal. So you're not making the patient any worse off than if you placed a standard monofocal. And I think by reducing the astigmatism, and the patient is still benefiting from such. Now, in Europe, there are other types of lenses, such as prism-based IOLs or magnifying IOLs that we don't have here in the United States. But these lenses have been studied and are very interesting to note that they could be helpful in optically moving the a central part of the visual axis for patients and helping reduce their central scotomas. So this is a technology that I find very interesting, although I do not have personal access to the technology. So again, 
for patients with AMD, either type, either stage or level, I would strongly recommend either a monofocal or a toric lens. Patients do need to be educated and counseled that unlike their friends and families that maybe received a different type of lens, they will still be wearing glasses. But I think the patients are best served by receiving one of these two types of lenses. How do you counsel your patients with age-related macular degeneration prior to cataract surgery in terms of expected outcomes? For my patients, similar to glaucoma patients, I set the expectation of a somewhat guarded prognosis after cataract surgery. Of course, I want to stay positive and let the patients know that there is still a higher um, visual acuity associated with cataract surgery, even with uh, history of concomitant macular degeneration. But we know that their result will not be the same as someone who doesn't have macular degeneration. In patients that have a better visual acuity preoperatively, Studies have shown that there is an associated higher visual acuity after cataract surgery, of course, because the patients probably have a less severe form of macular degeneration. Um, but again, it's still important to counsel the patients that their results may not be quite the same as someone who doesn't have macular degeneration. Also, many of our patients that have macular degeneration may be receiving treatments, such as injections or anti-VEGF therapy. And the good news is that the cataract surgery did not appear to influence parameters such as the foveal thickness or the interval of the anti-VEGF treatment needed, according to certain studies. Again, I think for patients with AMD, it's important to have them monitored by a retina specialist, especially if it's the neovascular form of AMD. And it's important to counsel our patients ahead of time about their possible guarded prognosis in terms of the visual acuity. So they're prepared with the proper expectations after the cataract surgery. But I think patients can still have a very good result and the improvement in their vision can, can yield lots of positive feedback from the patients and really help with their, their daily life. Thank you, Dr. Lowe. In our final interview, we will explore the key considerations for intraocular lens selection and the management of patients with cataracts and diabetic retinopathy. What are the main strategies for assessing and managing diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema? Well, as a cataract and refractive surgeon, I am not personally managing or treating much diabetic retinopathy. My main focus, of course, is to identify patients with diabetic retinopathy, uh, whether it be mild, moderate, or severe, hopefully more on the mild stage, and then I refer them to a retina specialist. But it's important to know still what parameters and treatment protocols are being done for our patients. And, you know, multiple studies, of course, have been done. His historically, treatments have changed over the years. For patients with more of a mild to moderate uh, non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. We're really focusing more on medical management. Treat laser treatments such as PRP are not really being performed on patients. And even now, focal laser is being less performed. If a patient gets something like diabetic macular edema and they're in the mild to moderate stage of NPDR, 
anti-VEGF therapy could be considered with close follow-up in order to help improve the vision and reduce the diabetic macular edema or DME. In patients with a more severe or NPDR, even a non-high-risk proliferative diabetic retinopathy, laser treatments such as PRP and even focal grid laser can sometimes be used. But anti-VEGF therapy is really becoming more of the mainstay of treatment, especially for, again, that diabetic macular edema that can be really vision-affecting for the patients. In contrast, the high-risk PDR patients or proliferative diabetic retinopathy patients really do need uh, PRP laser, and you can even consider focal grid laser, but anti-VEGF therapies appear to be more becoming more common for diabetic macular edema and have become successful treatments for our patients. Bottom line, as a cataract surgeon, I think what we should do is closely follow our patients when they have the mild or moderate NPDR and be quick to refer them to a retina specialist for proper treatment. How does diabetic retinopathy severity affect clinical outcomes following cataract surgery? That's a great, great question because, again, similar to our patients with glaucoma and AMD, our patients with diabetic retinopathy still have a desire to see well after cataract surgery and even want to still be spectacle-free. So what can we tell our patients? Well, we know in a study uh, performed by Han and others, the median visual acuity improved in people with diabetes with or without diabetic retinopathy up to one year after cataract surgery. So this is positive news. We know that patients can improve Cataract surgery is still worth it for them. Of course, if they have more advanced disease, such as the severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, or if they have proliferative diabetic retinopathy, the visual outcomes are not as good as they could be. However, these patients are typically starting off at a lower level of visual acuity preoperatively. Again, counseling is extremely important. And patients need to understand that they're not exactly like their friends and family and that their visual outcome may be different. Also, like we were discussing with the other medical conditions, it's critical to discuss the preoperative IOL options ahead of time. And I am, of course, much more cautious than anyone that has significant diabetic retinopathy uh, before recommending certain types of intraocular lenses, which we'll discuss in a few minutes. Another thing to think about is the macular edema that we all worry about that our patients can get after cataract surgery. Oftentimes, patients don't have macular edema prior to surgery, but we know that the inflammation caused by even perfect cataract surgery could influence the postoperative outcomes in terms of patients developing macular edema. And what a study found was People with diabetes, with or without diabetic retinopathy, are at a significantly higher risk for developing new onset macular edema after cataract surgery than those without diabetes. We know that CME can occur even in patients without diabetes, but again, patients with diabetes are at higher risk for developing this macular edema. 
What I like to counsel my patients on is to make sure that in the perioperative period, they are very strict with their sugar control. This, of course, is hard for patients to do, but it can be critical in the outcome and success. And I will often consider following these patients more closely postoperatively and, and performing OCTs of the macula to make sure that I'm not missing any type of macular edema that could be forming. What are your key considerations when selecting an intraocular lens for patients with diabetic retinopathy? Similar to the glaucoma and macular degeneration patients, it's all about the level of diabetic retinopathy that the patient has. If the patient's well-controlled, they have no evidence of non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, I think that we can still consider a wide variety of lenses, including even possibly multifocal lenses. But again, that's in the perfect patient. It's still important to know and explain to the patient that if their diabetes changes or worsens down the road, that they may have less satisfaction with their vision, more spectacle dependence, even with an advanced technology implant. But again, it's all about how they look preoperatively. If someone conversely has terrible diabetic retinopathy, such as macular edema, or they have advanced proliferative diabetic retinopathy, or even non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, the conversation becomes much more serious in the fact that these patients most likely should not receive an advanced technology intraocular implant because this will likely not reduce their spectacle dependence and may even worsen their visual acuity afterwards due to the diffractive technology in many of these lenses. So again, I think it still has to be taken on a case-by-case basis. If someone has been well-controlled for years and there's no evidence of any pathology on their retina, I will discuss options with the patient and learn about their motivations and their true desires. If someone, again, has severe diabetic retinopathy, there's really not an option for the patient. We have It's much better to stick with a monofocal lens and let the patient know that they will be spectacle dependent. I think that patients with diabetic retinopathy can still benefit from a toric lens. However, it's again important to set those expectations. And it really depends on the amount of astigmatism. If they have a large amount of astigmatism, I do think a toric lens could be helpful. But again, setting those expectations are letting the patient know they may not be glasses or spectacle independent. And so they're aware of that. There's also always a discussion about whether a silicone IOL or a hydrophilic IOL is better for patients. There's always been reported in the literature a concern for um, patients with diabetic retinopathy may need silicone oil treatment after, and that a silicone IOL may be better to be avoided due to condensation from the actual silicone. Uh, reacting with this, the silicone oil relacti- reacting with the silicone IOL. Uh, what's more recommended typically for patients with diabetic retinopathy is a hydrophobic acrylic IOL because there's less risk of posterior capsular opacification or PCO. And again, we're avoiding that silicone IOL issue. Other things to consider would be a square edged IOL because that's reducing the risk of PCO formation and the larger diameter IOL to help facilitate visualization and treatment of the peripheral retina. May want to avoid one of those um, uh, implants that reduces, again, that peripheral visualization of the retina uh, so our retina colleagues can still perform a good peripheral retinal exam. 
How do you counsel your patients with diabetic retinopathy prior to cataract surgery in terms of expected outcomes? Taking those few extra minutes to discuss why their eye is different than someone else's and to discuss how important it is for the patient to play a role in their care and really control that sugar ahead of time. I think often having them check in with their primary care physician ahead of time can be helpful just to make sure that their blood sugar is at an appropriate level. If the patient hasn't seen their primary care provider in a while, we want to make sure that the A1C is an appropriate level and that the patient is truly taking their medications and controlling their sugar. Because we know that if they go into the surgery with a high sugar and have an elevated blood sugar level in the perioperative period, that they have a higher risk of getting diabetic macular edema. It's also important to address other cardiovascular risk factors that often go along with diabetes. In addition, if someone seems to be borderline and needing a retina specialist to monitor them or even start anti-VEGF therapy, I am very proactive in sending the patient to the retina specialist. I think this not only allows them to get access to the best care possible, but also really highlights to the patient that they have another coexisting disease that can affect their outcome of their cataract surgery. How do you approach cataract surgery for patients with diabetes, but who have not yet developed diabetic retinopathy? This can always be the hardest question because many of our patients with diabetes and cataracts can be on the younger side. They may be in their 40s, 50s, or 60s and still have a very active life and, and, and want to be spectacle independent. Obviously, if they have a cataract, cataract surgery, I let them know that cataract surgery should help them. And there's different techniques to maybe even help reduce postoperative swelling and inflammation. I discuss the different options such as laser-assisted cataract surgery. Um, I also discuss the patient with the patient, the different IOL selection. And it's a tricky conversation because a patient may look okay now, but what is their prognosis with their diabetic retinopathy going to be in 10 years? Could they worsen? However, again, I still believe it's good to give a patient that option and educate them because they still do have the opportunity to benefit at this time from um, less spectacle dependence. And so I'll give them the options. I'll discuss the contraindication, possibly, if they have macular pathology. Of course, if they currently have it, then I would not recommend um, an advanced technology lens like a multifocal. But I think there's still an option to offer it to a patient and encourage them to continue and maintain the good quality of their vision by controlling their diabetes, their systemic diabetes condition after surgery. Now, if a patient elects, of course, to go with the monofocal route, I do think that's a very safe route to go, but we have to manage the expectations and let them know that they will be wearing glasses, especially for near vision activities. And again, most importantly, just recommending to the patient that they are constantly, you know, routinely monitored, not only for their systemic disease, but also for their ocular disease can go a long way in keeping our patients happy. Thank you for your insights and this useful summary, Dr. Lowe. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access additional content on this and related topics at www.touchophthalmology.com. Mm-hmm.